This paid podcast is produced by Slate Studios and Teva Pharmaceuticals. From Slate Studios and Teva Pharmaceuticals, this is Life Effects, a podcast about health. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. In this season, we explore health conditions and insights through the lens of the patient. We look at what they experience now. Man, so many times in my family, we just assume that it's in our blood, but that is not type 2 diabetes. That's not how it works. You don't inherit it like that. And we bring researchers into the conversation who can map out what the future might hold. We actually need to spend time talking with the patients who have the diseases, talking with the communities that we are trying to change to identify what it's going to take so that everybody is invested in the positive change. Today, we're talking about chronic illness and how to prevent it. We're zeroing in on type 2 diabetes. There's a generation of young adults actively trying to prevent a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. For a lot of these people, it hits close to home. It's something that affects older generations within their own families. Gabriel Cortez is one of those people. So my name is Gabriel Cortez. I'm 28 years old. My mama, first generation, moved to this country. So I'm first generation born here. I moved around a lot growing up. One of the places I've, I've lived the longest was in Aberdeen, Maryland. And that's where my grandfather lived. And my mom lived, and my grandma, and my uncle. Yeah, you know, it was a pretty full house. We had family reunions. My grandpa had this basement. And I remember in that room, we had aunties and uncles and cousins that would come through every once in a while, and we'd just dance. And I didn't know how to dance, because I didn't understand the music at all. I didn't speak Spanish. So I remember being like this light-skinned boy chilling in the corner, um, watching my family, you know, just really be jubilant. It was, I mean, I loved it. So my grandfather, he's from, from Panama. My grandpa used to always ask me if I love him. And I'd say, of course, of course I love you, grandpa. And um, he'd say, if you love your grandpa, get me a cookie. And so I would. I would run to the kitchen, and there was a little cabinet where we had a jar um, full of cookies. And I'd always grab him one, sometimes grab one for myself. Yeah, it would be kind of like a I love you too moment. I think we've, we've always, food's been close to how we show each other love. And thinking about when you've got such unhealthy food that gets thrown into the mix um, and kind of becomes a part of our family traditions, how dangerous that can be. I always remember opening up the refrigerator. There was always bologna. There was always this little slice of the cheese. Um, but then we always had these, yeah, drinks, you know, that were always plentiful. So we had like Sunny Delight. We had like Tampico. We had Dr. Pepper in these boxes. I don't know if you know the ones where you can tear away the corners and then they just kind of like rotate towards you in a constant flow. And when they weren't in the refrigerator cooling, we had more in the pantry. It's it's funny thinking about them, seeing them next to some of the stuff that my grandparents would make and how they just worked their way into the mix. My grandmother and my grandfather grew up eating rice and peas and chicken every meal. 
But then with the soda, with the sugar sweetened beverages, it became kind of like a mark of pride of like my Americanness. That like, oh, I can afford this, so we're we're always going to have this available. Not necessarily thinking about what the long term health impacts of that are. I think in a lot of ways it's reflected kind of what it was like to be this first generation in the United States. Um, the way that we've survived in this place has been so closely tied to how we've learned to hustle and just like get stuff for the cheap and soda is cheap. Um, of course, that's not coincidental either. The ways in which sugar sweetened beverage companies target with their advertising and try to work their ways into family traditions, like the choices and the options that you have really at your disposal are so determined by the environment in which you're living in. I was far away when my grandfather was finally diagnosed. I remember it not being like a huge moment, which I, th yeah, I think is the trippy part about it. It's just like, oh yeah, uh, grandpa has diabetes. I think the first time I experienced it was when I visited him later and he's a, in a nursing home. Um, like he doesn't have the house anymore. And he's one of the youngest people there. And I think one of the reasons he's there is because, yeah, there is a need for assisted care at this point. Man, so many times in my family, we just assume that it's in our blood, but that is not type two diabetes. That's not how it works. You don't inherit it like that. In a lot of ways, we're made to think that it's just an individual experience. And when I hear folks say like, oh, it's just individual choices, that makes me think like, oh, you need to pull the lens back a little bit and see what's what's really influencing those individual choices and what's what's really on the table as an option for folks. We're delighted to have Gabriel here with us today. Gabriel's a poet and teaching artist. He works as an educator at Youth Speaks in San Francisco. Gabriel, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Dr. Mercedes Carnathon of Northwestern University is here. Dr. Carnathon is the vice chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine and chief of epidemiology in the Department of Preventive Medicine. Dr. Carnathon, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Gabriel, your story is really quite moving. Your grandfather is now in a nursing home. How is he doing? He's doing okay. Um, I recently got to see him when I went home um, to visit family. And I think he's always, you know, in high spirits. But, um, you know, his health has is, is changed a lot um, in, in the time since I've gotten to see him. So, you know, it's, it's a trip getting to, you know, see him get older and the ways in which just his illnesses are impacting him. But he's always, you know, smiling, always um, just very generous with his stories. Um, but, yeah, it, it seems like his body's, his, his body's hurting. You know, in some ways for you, the odds were stacked uh, in terms of type 2 diabetes. How have you managed to stay healthy and diabetes free? There's, I think, a few different factors. One is that um, 
just as I've gotten older, I think that my family's social class has has shifted. You know, my mother very much came to this country as a first generation migrant, and um, but since I've, I've gotten older, I think that we've shifted more into middle class. Um, so we just have and I especially have access to healthier food options that are more affordable to me, especially living in the place where I live now. I no longer live where I grew up with my grandfather and my mom, um, but I live in Berkeley, California, the home of California cuisine, and um, where there's I've got options and farmer's markets to choose from and healthy food stores just within my neighborhood. So I have really great access to healthy food. Um, I live in a place where I can safely go outside and just walk around and have no fears of my own safety if I want to go work out. And I also got to encounter mentors and communities that have been really influential and just helping me even shape my thinking around food, around type 2 diabetes. Dr. Carnathan, as a diabetes researcher, what's your initial reaction to Gabriel's story? You know, I was really touched by Gabriel's story because I think it really is similar to stories of many families across generations. So he observed um, what happened with his grandfather's health and made positive changes and very deliberate choices in his own life to... um, provide himself with uh, options for physical activity and better diet. More often, we see multiple generations uh, suffering from the same um, cases of diabetes and other chronic illnesses because access to healthier options often doesn't get better across generations. And so I think Gabriel is a real inspiration, particularly in choosing to speak out about it and his experience. Gabriel, what challenges have you faced from your family or from your peers uh, as you've uh, embarked to eat better and to take better care of yourself? I think that there's some still longstanding um, cultural things that we've developed as just ways of surviving, particularly in this country um, and just in the world where um, the first thing I think that my family thinks about when it comes to food is just cost. Right. We're trying to get the most uh, the cheapest option whenever we go, even just when I go grocery shopping with my mom to the store. It's about what can we get and how can we save the most money? And oftentimes the, the cheapest options are the most unhealthy options. So when I'll go home, it's it's like even though we're of this particular class, I think that there's still I don't know if it's a kind of trauma <laughs> holding on to um just the the kind of survival instincts that we have that have gotten us through really kind of like different levels of of, of poverty and um, just not having much when we're drinking, when we have even like Minute Maid pink lemonade in my little brother's hands and we go on like a little, a little trip to the beach and I see him putting back like two or three of these in a day and um, he doesn't understand uh, really what the potential impact of that could be on him. So I remember showing him, I was like, let's read the back of the can together. Let's look how much and try to see how much sugar is in this, just this individual can. And when we look at 40 grams of sugar, that's like in a language that we really aren't supposed to understand. We don't even get the daily recommended percentage um, next to it. Um, so we have to look it up. And when we find that, I think the maximum that an adult 
is supposed to have on a on a daily just the maximum is like 37 grams wow and so trying to navigate i think still kind of this imposed kind of language barrier around our food it's it's been a challenge dr carnathan what i wonder from you uh how, as somebody working in this field, how do you respond to this idea that it's expensive to try to avoid uh, eating things that are bad for you? There's a metric that we we often describe that the amount of calories an item has is inversely related to its cost. Uh, so uh, just to break that down, you know, the more filling an item is, the the less it tends to cost. Imagine if you're a family trying to feed three children and a husband and a grandmother off of $30 for one meal. What's going to cost you more? Two boxes of macaroni and cheese or fresh vegetables that you're going to have to then steam, lean uh, protein, sources of protein, fish or chicken, which may not even be available in your own neighborhoods. So then you have to take public transportation to go pick up these items to come home and prepare them after a busy day. Or is it just easier to buy the two boxes of macaroni and cheese for $1.99 and 15 minutes on top of the stove to get the food ready? So these are real barriers and challenges that many communities face, not just minority communities, but the working poor. We have a lot of people who just don't have the resources. And when I say resources, I mean time as well to be very thoughtful and deliberate about what we're preparing and serving for our families. Your research is on the epidemiological side of things, uh, and that is the occurrence and distribution of diabetes and other diseases. Can you give us some baseline um, numbers, maybe paint us a picture of the chronic disease landscape, particularly as it pertains to younger people like Gabriel's demographic? Yes, definitely. And and focusing specifically on diabetes, we've seen a real shift to an earlier age of onset of diseases like type 2 diabetes. The leading risk factor for developing diabetes is obesity, um, which is an excess in energy in the body. So um, people who eat too much and exercise too little, in the simplest case, are more likely to become obese. People who are obese are more likely to develop diabetes. And as we've seen the epidemic of childhood obesity going up over time, secondary to more screen time, more time spent indoors, particularly in communities that aren't safe for kids to go out and play, um, the ready availability of mobile phones and other devices, children are just sitting more and they're gaining weight and we have a food source that's more energy dense, so it has more calories and more nutrients that aren't necessarily healthy. So as people are becoming obese earlier, they're developing the chronic diseases that we didn't used to see till people hit middle age, 40s and 50s, they're instead developing these chronic diseases in their late teens and early 20s. And when we see that, we end up with an entire population who is exposed to diabetes for even longer. What are the biggest challenges, societally speaking, that people who have type 2 diabetes are facing right now? Some of the big uh, challenges that people who have type 2 diabetes are facing with regard to their 
disease management is that uh, diabetes management is time intensive. It is emotionally intensive. And when you have a disease that the burden is highest in lower income communities, in racial and ethnic minority communities who may feel alienated from the center of society, those communities are more likely to face stressors that are financial stressors, that are social stressors. So imagine having to pile those stresses on top of a daily intensive medication regimen and the threat of debilitating complications. So many people with diabetes know someone else who has diabetes who's lost a leg, who has gone blind. And for those individuals to go back to their doctor at regular intervals to discuss their diabetes management and to hear a physician say, if you don't change your diet, you're going to risk going blind. If you can't be more physically active, then, you know, you're going to end up on dialysis. And, you know, for a family who has two working parents who often is caring across multiple generations in the same home, having to carve out that type of intensive time to manage their own disease can be very challenging. And we don't have within the healthcare system a very good strategy for providing the psychological and social supports needed to properly manage diabetes. So in my opinion, it's really the access to those ancillary resources that are very important uh, to equip somebody so that they have the self-efficacy or the belief that they can change uh, their behaviors, that they have the access to the tools and foods and safe spaces that they need to be able to modify their um, behaviors in order to better manage their diabetes. One thing that I was also thinking about is that given the link between obesity and diabetes uh, and the way culturally and in terms of a, a society at large, we either explicitly or implicitly think about people who are obese, uh, people might not be so inclined to get treatment if they feel like, oh, I'm going to go to the doctor and they're going to judge me. They're going to think that sort of my obesity is my fault, that once you add in that layer, then getting treated or managing your treatment is even more uh, complicated. I agree. I think that um, diabetes and obesity are very stigmatizing conditions. People who have these diseases of lifestyle are often blamed for having poor self-control. And there isn't the amount of time spent stepping back to look at the social factors that are contributing to the higher rates of diabetes. Um, we tend to forget that. These individuals don't want to have to go back to the doctor and hear the same bad news over and over again and hear the same reprimands to get more sleep, to eat better, to be more physically active. I think it's very hard. Gabriel, do you have any uh, thoughts on this topic? Yeah, definitely. One of the things about diabetes and, and, and obesity that I'm always I'm often wary of too is um, I wonder if the if because we so closely associate them with each other that it actually obscures the reality like that you don't also have to be obese to have type two diabetes or to be in in danger of, of getting that. Like I understand that there's also folks who um, 
you can physically you can look at them and you could perceive them as healthy maybe because of the way um, they they do or don't carry fat um, but it's really difficult to determine someone's actual health health outcomes without actually like running them through a physical and I think that it's exact that exact reason why it's so important that we don't just look at this issue as just a series of individual choices but we're pulling that lens back and are thinking about this as an issue of access issues of systemic violence, um, even issues of policy. Um, when I'm thinking about, like, why do neighborhoods where black and brown folks live, why is it often that you'll have more access to liquor stores than healthy food stores? Or even just thinking about, like, the 2002 Farm Bill, which I believe helped subsidize corn and really since we see like corn and high fructose corn syrup in so much of our food, um, especially processed food, which is most accessible to folks in our communities. So it's like when we really start to pull that apart and we think about like where does individual choice fit in this matrix of things that are really determining what even choices are accessible to us. Dr. Carnathan, I'm wondering, are there developments in your field that can help us see what the future holds for those people who have type 2 diabetes or who are trying to prevent its onset? I would say a notable development in our field is an increasing recognition of the contribution of the social determinants of health. And when I say the social determinants, I mean the role that culture, the role that socioeconomic status or finances, and the role that access and levels of stress play in who develops disease and how that disease is managed. So a field called community-based participatory research or community-engaged research research. So I express surprise that the sugar-sweetened beverage tax ban was even in question. But that's because I work in an echo chamber of academics, people concerned about health who have their own list of priorities. If I really wanted to implement an intervention or make a change, I need to spend more time talking to the people on the ground about how that would influence their lives so that I can work together to come up with solutions and to try to make my case and get stakeholders and buy-in that these changes are necessary. And, you know, I think I think where policy change has failed in the past is it's been very top-down. And even on the research side, we're recognizing the need to get input from people. Imagine the clinician who is surprised or frustrated that their patient is not compliant. You know, the risks are high. You could lose your eyesight. You could lose your leg. Why won't you take your medicine? And when there isn't that simple exchange to hear the patient say, I can't afford to purchase enough medicine for every day, so I'm cutting my medicine in half, or I can't take off work to take two buses over to the county to refill my prescription because I have to work, you know, there's there are those social factors where when we are exploring reasons why people have trouble preventing disease or managing disease, we actually need to spend time talking with the patients who have the diseases, talking with the communities that we're trying to change to identify what it's going to take so that everybody is invested in the positive change. 
And Gabriel, what about you? What do you foresee for the future for your work in the community and in dealing with uh, diabetes? Yes, definitely. Well, the work that I'm doing um, is definitely continuing. Um, I think whenever I'm making spaces for young folks to tell their stories, I, I love to always ask the question about, you know, really how do these topics like type 2 diabetes, how do they relate to their their personal stories, right? And I always love to make space um, to, to share my personal experiences just to open up the conversation. Um, I often say that poems are like the first words in, in conversations that hopefully continue after the poet steps from stage, after the poet says their last, last words. And yes, I'm hoping that one day... Um, you know, the, the, the artwork that we're doing contributes to the culture shifts that we've been talking about and hopefully is reflected in policy. And maybe one day we'll have percentages <laughs> written next to the amount of sugar, added sugar in our, um, on the backs of like our, our sodas so that we can better understand like what, what really we are ingesting each time we kind of open up a, a soda can. I really think it's wonderful the intersection of art and science um, because I think quite often your ability to reach a different um, different part of people um, and to really appeal to the emotion and the, the personal side can in many ways be much more persuasive than the data that I present to scientific audiences. And so it's just really wonderful to see you involved in this work. Thank you so much. Gabriel, I'd love it if you would share with us a poem you wrote uh, about your grandfather and about diabetes. Yes. So this is called The Author's Mother Cooks Ramen. Um, and it's really about um, what for the longest was my favorite food <laughs> um, growing up. And I think is really reflective of just kind of the conditions of which um, I was growing up, you know, with, with my mom. And um, I think my mom trying to do the best that she could with what was available to her and using the best that, you know, you know, trying to move the best uh, way that she knows. So it's called The Author's Mother Cooks Ramen. She holds the package over the steam. She breaks the block in half. She cracks it clean as crab shell. This, her other favorite food. Oh, Walmart cuisine, always in season a quarter in a corner store away. Oh, 13 cent soup, salivating tongue at the smell of sodium. Oh, birdless nest, stained tooth color, bag of voodoo boiled into balm. She simmers the pot, lifts the nurse's scrubs off her shoulders, and this the closest your mother comes to scratch. Barefoot by the stove, concocting a recipe that comes signed on the backs of each of her paychecks. Oh, she pours the salt. Folds half in a drawer in case the next serving forgets its own heart attack. She stirs the sour cream, and the liquid thickens the color of cataracts. You slurp straight from the pot. She warns not to swallow the broth, and you're reminded now of the sea. How surrounded by brine and overcome with thirst, the shipwrecked sailor inevitably holds the ocean to their lips and drinks. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Very powerful. That was beautiful. Thank you. Gabriel Cortez, Dr. Mercedes Carnathon, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Gabriel Cortez is an educator and poet in San Francisco. Dr. Mercedes Carnathon is the vice chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine at Northwestern University. 
Life Effects is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Teva. You can find out more about all the episodes in this season at lifeeffects.teva. I'm Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>